message is entitled, Blessed are the Merciful. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And I'm going to share something today that's going to be fresh from the headlines this morning. Charles Finney, I believe, is the one who said that a good preacher should preach with a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other so that they could speak to the things that are occurring today. And this may be a very fresh and very controversial subject for some people. So I would just humbly ask that you listen to a, with an open heart and open mind and not allow our own emotions to immediately shut up or shut each other down about what we're going to be talking about today. Because I have a confession to make. Last Saturday after, or Sunday afternoon, I was enraged. I mean, I was fit to be tied. I had not been that angry in a long time. And the reason I was angry was from watching NFL players, even those overseas, especially those overseas, kneel in an apparent disrespect to our flag and our national anthem. In addition, those overseas disrespected the anthem of their country while standing for God Save the Queen. And you can ask Tammy, I was, I was seeing red. I was a, about to do some un, very unchristlike things and wanting to do some very unchristlike things to some of these players. Because as a veteran and a man who loves his country, that blatant disrespect shown by an organization and by men who enrich themselves off the very nation that they are now spitting on made me want to do those unchrist things to them. And all I kept, could think of is people in the Armed Forces Network were watching their American football teams disrespect them and their country while they're over there in harm's way. And I thought about the men whom I have known or I have known, and some of the family members who came home in flag-draped coffins, and that they sacrificed their lives and so, th so that a bunch of millionaires could join the latest social media Cool Kids Club, which is what I, at that time, thought that protest was, and they're protesting something that they don't even really understand. They just want to be on the right side of the social media um, scale here. And of course, social media itself blew up with people typing in caps to one another. If you don't know what that means, that's the verbal equivalence of shouting and screaming at one another. And that just made me even angrier at people. Even many pastors didn't see the problem with this protest. And that anger kept going into Tuesday, which is the next time I got to spend some real time alone with God. And during that alone time, I looked up the verse that I'd be preaching this week, and thought, ouch, because I read it was about being merciful. So I'm going to read the scripture that we're going to get into today, and then we're going to look at what Jesus was saying and how it applies to our lives today. Matthew 5, verse 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. And Father God, we just ask, Father, that this message... Touch our hearts right where we live, Father, as we use a, an example of what's happening in our today and applying it to this verse. Let us see the truth in it through what your Son was saying and what your Son was trying to engender within us, Lord. Father God, help our thoughts and attitudes be changed through the purity of your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now the big idea that I get from this scripture is that the subject of mercy is the litmus test of our Christianity. Just like a litmus test is used in chemistry to prove the purity of a chemical, 
Mercy proves the purity of our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate that for a little before we get into what Jesus was referring to here. Let's say that tomorrow you're in a hurry and you need to get cash out of the ATM. Maybe work doesn't take credit cards or you need them for vending machines. For whatever reason, you need to have cash on you right now. And the only ATM in the city exists at Gordy's. That's a no-fee ATM because you don't want to pay two bucks, $2.50 to get your own money out of the bank, right? So you go to the no-fee ATM, and the only one is at Gordy's. Now, as most of us know, Gordy's parking can be problematic on some days. Sometimes it fills up for the various businesses. Sometimes it fills up just on its own. And there's no spaces available. You drive through the parking lot, can't find a single space available. You look on the street, all the street parking's taken up. The only parking space you can even see is at RCU's parking that's on the other end of the parking lot, and it's pouring rain out, and you didn't bring your umbrella. There is one other space available, though. And that's the handicapped parking space. So as you drive around the parking lot and you look at this handicapped space, you look around, there's nobody else coming, and you're thinking, well, there's nobody else here, nobody else is using that space, I'm only going to be in there for about two minutes, and maybe, you know, maybe it's okay just to do it this one time. You think, you know, mercy. Maybe they'll have mercy on me and nobody will, will see it and no police officer will come and give me a ticket. So you run in and you do your business. You take less than two minutes. You come back out and you discover your car was pushed forward. And there's a big dent in your bumper from the person with the handicap van who is angry for you parking in their space. So then what do you do? You're not asking for mercy anymore. You're calling a cop to get justice, aren't you? And I think most of us would react just like this person in this scenario, is that we want mercy for ourselves, but we want justice for everybody else. Let me speak to what Jesus is teaching us here about mercy. And the first thing we need to understand about this concept of mercy is that mercy is a fruit or an intended consequence of a righteousness that we have received. I want you to look at the Beatitudes for a whole as a moment and watch how they're building on each other. Jesus first says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus then says, blessed are those who mourn. And then blessed are the meek. These three Beatitudes or these three beautiful attitudes of Jesus speak to a person's repentance and dying to themselves. And the result of people dying to themselves is that they should be losing their appetites for soulish or fleshly pursuits and instead gain a pursuit of righteousness and want a pursuit of righteousness to become like the Savior that died for them. And the first fruit of that pursuit, is what, as we begin to understand, is what it means to be merciful. And the next several Beatitudes are also fruit of this pursuit of righteousness that we'll be getting into in the coming weeks. Now we could talk about the high-minded ideas and ideals of the Bible, but I want to bring this right down to where we live and what it looks like in real life. Because in real life, how we live out our faith in Jesus is shown by our mercy. Because mercy is righteousness in action. We see this in John chapter 8. There's the account of a woman who was caught in adultery. In fact, she was caught in the very act of adultery. The Pharisees went and ripped the women out of this bedroom and threw her at the feet of, the, of Jesus. And they asked them, you know, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? 
And it makes you wonder which one of the Pharisees had the peeping Tom duty that week on the night that she was caught because she was literally ripped from the act and thrown at the feet of Jesus. And most of us know the story. This woman was probably a married woman. She's having an affair with a married man, not her spouse. And the Pharisees were actually following the law. They were following the Bible of their time. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, it commands that both people caught in the adultery had to be put to death. And that death was by stoning. And so by Old Testament law, the Pharisees were absolutely correct in their interpretation and in their application as law as they knew it with the exception of the man not always being there. But Jesus saw this, he saw right through it. They knew, or Jesus knew this was an effort to trap him and get something that they could use against him. And Jesus, Because if Jesus says that the law must be obeyed, this was a trap, if Jesus said that the law must be obeyed, then the Pharisees could point out that said, all the law has to be obeyed. That means, Jesus, you come under our authority. Because we are the chief priests. We are the the people of the temple. You're from the tribe of Judah. You have no right to take on a Levitical priesthood. You have to then listen to what we say. However, if Jesus refuses to condemn the woman and continues his message of grace and forgiveness, they could brand him an unrighteous heretic and a violator of God's law as given through Moses and immediately have a justification for stoning him. For disobeying the law. So they're trying to trap him with this whole situation. And Jesus recognizes it. He recognizes a trap. And he masterfully paints him into a corner of their own making. He said, if anyone here is without sin, you cast the first stone. The Bible says that they all walked away at that point. The oldest first, and then the youngest. The order that they dropped their stones and left Jesus is significant in that those of us with a few more years under their belts compared to some younger people, we can begin to understand as we get older that we're not all that, don't we? We begin to understand that as the Holy Spirit peels away all the junk that makes us us, especially the stuff that before salvation, and, and as the Holy Spirit works in my life, I get glimpses of who I really am. And I realize that apart from Jesus, I'm wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And I need more and more of God's grace and mercy with every breath I take. That's something that I learn. And that's, that's why these, the older people left first, because they actually start to know themselves the more um, aged you get. And even though the law said what this woman and this man did were wrong, evil, and hateful in the eyes of the law, and according to the law, she deserved death, Jesus acted righteously with this woman because he knew God's heart for her. And he knew that he was going to die for her. So Jesus was able to show mercy. You know, we have four books listing the words of Jesus, and for the most part, his words were encouraging and merciful. They were life-giving to those who came to him with humility. But Jesus lost his mind on religious people. People who would insist on using God's law to condemn others and in so prop up their, their own self-worth and, and their own pride and supposed righteousness that they had within themselves. But Jesus called people like that whitewashed tombs, called them snakes, even called them children of the devil and sons of hell. 
That's a pretty, pretty big epithet there. And this idea of mercy being more important than levying judgment against people and worshiping the law was exemplified by Jesus' little brother James who said this. In James 2 verse 13 he said, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. And if you are here today and you've not become a disciple of Jesus, you're going to be judged by the law and how well you followed it. And you're in trouble if that's, that's the case because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Without Jesus' sacrifice covering your violations of the law, you're going to enter into judgment. And that's just Bible. That's just Christianity 101. It's not intolerance or it's not being narrow-minded about other people's lifestyles or their choices. It's a very word of God about our personal sins. But for those of us who are believers and disciples of Jesus, remember last week when I said that God doesn't judge believers based on performance but upon pursuit? Well, part of our pursuit of God and His righteousness will be how much you allow this beautiful attitude of Jesus to be shown in your life because that is our litmus test that proves if Jesus' beautiful attitude of mercy is really ruling in our hearts. So I ask you this as the litmus test. When you see sin and you see unrepentant sinners, do you immediately react with disgust and anger? Because if you do, there might be a little bit of a Pharisee in you. When people directly sin against you, do you react defensively and lash out against them somehow? If so, you might have an inner Pharisee who is trying to defend your personal sense of righteousness instead of trusting Jesus to do it. And that leads us to our next point about mercy. Mercy is not dependent upon how we feel. We in the church have a problem, and it's the same problem that historically all Christians have had, is that we confuse our secular comforts, we confuse our preferences, and we confuse our safety with spiritual truth. Bringing up this NFL controversy again. My feelings on this matter are that I will not support with my viewership or finances any organization that chooses to disrespect the flag or our national anthem by using it as a method of protest. Those are my feelings. However, I don't, nor can I expect everyone to be as passionate about this as I am. Particularly, I know a lot of people that if you did not serve time in uniform or you were not raised by people who served time in uniform, I can't expect you to have the same passion about it as I do. In fact, not all veterans, for that matter, share my opinion. But on the flip side of this coin, and this is where mercy comes in and gives us different perspective, those of us here, and me especially, did not grow up African American. Or for lack of, for lack of easier speaking, we didn't grow up black. I spent most of my life in the city. I grew up living among people of all ethnicities. I had a few black friends in high school, and I even dated a few black women. Even though my, a few of my family routinely dropped the N-word in referring to black people, I always thought it was stupid because there were people just like me, just with a slightly different culture and a different ways of looking at things. 
In fact, one of the few times that I have ever gotten involved in a protest was when the Ku Klux Klan came to Kenosha and they wanted to hold their own rally. They were handing out flyers by a grocery store that used to be named Sung Foods. And they were going to do a white power parade. And I stood with my black friends in protest to that stupidity. Serving, serving in the military further erased any thoughts of racism from my mind. As you were taught from day one of basic training, the army only has one color, and that's green. Tan now, but back then the uniforms were green. Therefore, I've never really considered myself a racist. Occasionally, I would um, have to rebuke racist thoughts in my head, but I, at my core, do not consider myself a racist. I believe that all of humanity is, is made in Imago Dei, the image of God. But saying all of that, I don't consider myself an expert of how black Americans in 2017 view our country. Personally, I think many of them have bought into this media-driven lie that everyone from the police to the government to the culture is out to get them. I think that's a lie, but it is how they feel. And once you get emotions involved, all the evidence to the contrary won't matter. That's how powerful our emotions can be. How many of us have known a person who has fallen in love with somebody who was completely wrong and completely bad for them? And it didn't matter how much logic, how much evidence, how much opinion that you gave them, it won't change their mind because they are in love. And they know that that person is, is the person for them. Well, this is very similar to what is going on in the African-American community and, and through our entire culture. We're living on emotion. And in defense of honoring the flag and the anthem, I was sharply criticized by pastors some, most of them were more on the liberal mindset, about not showing mercy to those who feel oppressed in our country. And I admit, my initial reaction to that probably wasn't very Christ-like. And it was in my, I call it jokingly, my native language, which is sarcasm. I said, well, you mean these guys on the field making millions of dollars who drive luxury cars and living in mansions are oppressed? If they're oppressed, sign me up, because that is some oppression I want to be involved with. I can barely clear $50,000 a year for saving people's lives, and they make millions playing a ball game. You know, sign me up for some of that oppression that they feel. If you want to talk about equality, you should probably pick a different person than me. And admit, I was, I was referring or responding in a fleshly way at that point. And the next reply that I got had to do with me being a Nazi. So I decided that the Goodwin's Law has now been violated. Goodwin's Law is an internet adage that says as soon as the... Um, that every internet argument will eventually devolve into somebody calling somebody else a Nazi. It's just, and it happens, and then the discussion's over because you're not going to be able to go anywhere from there. So I just com I stopped commenting on that person's particular status. And on Sunday, this re scenario was repeated several times until I just stopped commenting about it. And I got so mad and I got so angry with other people that I was seconds away from ruining friendships over this. And then Tuesday, I'm sitting in the hospital's on-call house, and I'm starting to think it's time to start outlining the message for this week, and it's on mercy. So after some prayer and after the Holy Spirit regained control over my hearts and my emotions, I went back and deleted all my old posts on the subject. But my mind has not changed a bit on it, but my response and the way I'm going to deal with it has changed. You see, I started studying 
this idea that mercy is unmerited or unearned favor. We cannot do anything to earn mercy. And if you have been around Christianity for any length of time, you have heard that mercy is, un, is um, unmerited favor. You've heard that over and over again. But what it means in plain and basic English is this. Mercy is undeserved kindness. Mercy is undeserved courtesy. Mercy is undeserved love. And mercy is undeserved forgiveness. That is why the Bible says mercy triumphs over judgment. Because mercy is a reaction of a heart that is surrendered to Jesus, that refuses to take offense. Mercy breaks down what is eternally important from the present things that are very unimportant. And one of the questions I felt the Holy Spirit impress on me about the NFL's and the players' reactions was this is that I will still be alive for all eternity in heaven. I have given my heart to Jesus, so I know I will be alive for all eternity. So will the fact that American, that the American national anthem and flag are being disrespected by athletes matter a million years from now when I'm in heaven? Will it matter a thousand years from now? I mean, do we remember the name of some guy who didn't stand up when Caesar went past in Rome? Will it matter 100 years from now? 10 years? A year? A month? Before we get upset about something else? Now I ask the same question about the souls of the people protesting. Will they matter a million years from now? A thousand years from now? A hundred years from now? 10 years? One month? Today? If today is the time that they have to meet with Jesus? Do they matter more than this protest? Because there are certain segments of our society, there are certain media pundits, there are talking heads everywhere that want me to withhold love and mercy from these men. I don't have to agree with a person's actions to show them love and mercy to the people involved. Jesus does not agree with every single action we do in life, but he still shows us love and mercy, and therefore we should do the same. Amen. That is why mercy is a decision that can only come from a heart that has given itself over to Jesus. You and I, we don't want to show mercy on our own. We don't. We want to take offense. We want to be angry. We want to let our emotions rule the day. It's a natural response of a heart that has not been born again is to react emotionally to things. But mercy is so important to God and to Jesus because you and I are the biggest beneficiaries of it. And that brings us to our last point. Believers are to practice mercy because we're the ones that benefited from it first. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. And for time's sake, I'm going to condense this and modernize it a little bit so it makes a little bit more sense to our 21st century mind, but it is going to be faithful to the text. And I would encourage you to understand mercy. I would encourage you to read it, pray over it, and study it. It's in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Peter begins this narrative by asking Jesus, how many times, Lord, should I forgive somebody who wrongs me? So let's define forgiveness. What is forgiveness? 
It's showing mercy to somebody who's wronged you. Forgiveness has to do and is rooted in mercy. And Jesus uses a story to show what mercy and forgiveness look like. He tells of a king who decides to settle all of his financial accounts and he calls everyone who owes the crown money to come and pay off their debts. And one of the first people that shows up is a man who owes the king millions and millions and millions of dollars and he cannot even begin to pay the king back. Now the king in this story has absolute power to throw this man in prison, put him in forced labor, sell everything he has, including his wife and children, into slavery to try to settle this account. And the man knows this and he falls on his face before the the king weeping and begging, King, have mercy, forgive me this debt, give me more time, help me to pay it. And the king is moved by his reaction and being a righteous man, he shows mercy and he forgives the debtor these millions and millions and millions of dollars and tells him to go in peace and sends him on his way. Now this man is full of joy. He's leaving the the chamber of the king completely forgiven. This huge weight that he's been carrying has been lifted off of his shoulders. And on the way out the door, he spots a man that he owed $5 to last week. He gave him a $5 because he didn't have food for lunch at work. So he gave him 5 and he says, hey man, you owe me $5, pay up. Well, the man said, hey man, sorry dude, I'm still kind of broke. I don't have any cash on me, but I'll get it back to you as soon as I can. Now, the recently forgiven man freaks out, starts yelling and screaming at the guy, and he immediately pulls out his phone and posts on his Facebook page, I said I was modernizing this a little bit, posts on his Facebook page about how much this guy is a crook, about how much he doesn't pay his... his, his, his debts, and, and he's, he shouldn't do business with them. He had a successful business, but he said he shouldn't do business with them because he's, he's just a rip-off artist and a con man, and he tries to destroy this guy via social media. But what he doesn't know is that the king's chief accountant is one of his followers on Facebook. And as this accountant is actually writing off the debt on the ledgers of the king, this, text, or this Facebook message pops up on his screen. And the man looks at it and goes, really? Brings it to the king and says, hey, king, look what just popped up on my Facebook page. The king just about loses his mind and calls for that man to be dragged back before him. He said, I forgave you millions of dollars in debt. And now you're going to try to ruin this man's life over a $5 bill? The king turns to his legal team and he tells them, I want this guy in prison. I want you to go after everything that he has. I want his great-great-great-grandchildren still paying off his debt by the time you're done with them. And Jesus ends this story with this statement. And this statement is written in emphatic Greek. In English, it would mean that this statement would be written in caps with exclamation points on each end to show how important what Jesus was saying in this in this um, verse here. Jesus said, If you, who God has forgiven every single sin you have or ever will commit, fail to do the same to those around you, you will be shown no mercy at the judgment. My friends, mercy is the litmus test of our faith in Jesus. And through its application, it either proves our faith or it denies our faith if we withhold it. Because if you're going to withhold mercy from others and forgiveness from others, then the next time you mess up, 
I want you to be consistent in your life and pray that God immediately executes judgment upon you and for your sin. At least be consistent. So I ask you today, is there anyone here who you are withholding mercy from? If somebody needs mercy from you, let's all rise.